Job chapter 3. We began a series in the book of Job a month or so ago, uh, going actually chapter by chapter through this book. Because we believe that one of the ways God makes us more like Jesus Christ is to put us through suffering, put us through difficulty and and through trials. Uh, God draws us closer to him, uh, makes us more dependent upon him through that, and molds us to be more like Jesus Christ in that process. So we are going through this book to learn how to handle that. Because if we're going to go through that, we need to know some biblical ways to manage that difficulty when it comes. Chapter 3 we've titled this morning, Man Without a Clue. A Man Without a Clue. And you'll see Job uh, personify that as we walk through this chapter this morning. Now, we were in this book two weeks ago. Since that time, Job has not moved uh, since Satan unleashed his ta- attack upon him. Uh, Job's entire life has been destroyed. His clothes are torn. His head is shaved. Uh, he is covered in boils from, the, from his toes to his feet. And Job sits in the dirt and scrapes himself with a piece of pottery, scraping those scabs and sores off of his body that are formed there because of uh, the attack upon him. And for seven days, he has sat in that place without speaking and without expression. Uh, Job is numb from the extreme pain he's gone through. He has simultaneously lost all of his possessions and all of his children all at one time. In the matter of moments, uh, all those things are gone. Uh, He sought consolation from his wife. The only words he receives from her is for her to let him know she thinks he'd be better off dead and pretty much tells him to go and kill himself. Uh, Job's three friends have come to mourn with him, but for seven days they have sat there with him and have said nothing. Uh, Job barely looks human from the suffering he's gone through He is in such misery, they aren't really sure what even to say to him at that point. Uh, There's no answer to what Job is experiencing, uh, so they sit with him for seven days and seven nights and say nothing at all to him. What they're doing as they all sit there, they're reviewing in their own minds what has happened to Job, and they're coming to some conclusions about this thing that we're going to see in the weeks ahead. But Job is sitting there as well, wondering why this has all happened to him. Job has no clue what's going on in heaven and never does find out about that. He sits there with no idea at all why this has happened to him. All he knows is the grief is so great that he cannot speak. He can't say a word and has nobody to blame, no excuses to give, just sits. But there is an unseen audience watching this situation go on, and they're watching this thing with great interest. Because there's much more at stake here than just, just Job's life. God has challenged the devil to test Job's integrity. That is what this is about as far as the heavenly point of view. And Satan has responded by telling God that he says Job will curse God to his face if enough enough pressure is put on him. Just put enough pressure on and he'll cave. The angels and the demons alike, I'm sure, are waiting to see what Job will do. Who's going to win this contest? How much more can Job take? Uh, Satan's right. If you put enough on a person, especially if you take their health from them, uh, men will oftentimes curse God because of that eventually. But for the circumstances they are going through, and they've been called to endure. And so seven days, Job sits there. And then after that seven-day period, there's movement. Job lifts his head, and his mouth begins to move as though he wants to say something. And all of heaven and earth, I believe, are fixed on that moment, waiting to see what Job is about to say. Will he curse God, as Satan said that he would, as he predicted, as his wife told him to? Or will he maintain his integrity in spite of all he's gone through? From our scripture today, I want us to look at the first words Job speaks after all this trial and tragedy has befallen him. I want you to see his words from a practical point of view as Job responds to his calamity. But again, as we've talked about uh, several times now, there's more going on in this book than just Job's calamity. This book is also a prophetic book. This book tells us about that time to come, that time known as the Great Tribulation. I want to remind you, the tribulation is a period of time that commences after God takes his church out of here uh, through the rapture. 
The church does not go through the tribulation. There is no point for the church to go through that. All those who are unsaved when Jesus Christ returns will be here at that time to go through that difficulty. And specifically, this is a time where God has designed to bring his people, the nation of Israel, to repentance and back to him again. That's what the tribulation is all about. And he'll do that by unleashing horrors upon this earth for three and a half years, the likes of which the world has never seen. There have been horrors that have gone on in this world, folks. There's horrors going on right now. Nothing compared to what the tribulation is going to be all about. And the end result of all that time, that seven-year period, is that Satan and those who follow him will be vanquished, and the entire world will be placed finally under God's control. Now, the first thing I'd like you to so as we go through this, is going to be sort of a Bible study this morning, as well as some practical teaching from the words that Job speaks. I want us to start with the first ten verses of this thing, as Job curses his day. Job curses his day. Look at verse 1. After this, opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. Notice what Job doesn't do. He doesn't curse God. That's what Satan predicted. That's not what Job does. Job curses his day instead. He doesn't blame God for the attack. He doesn't blame God for what has occurred in his life. Job has sat there for seven days pondering what has happened to him and his conclusion come that he comes to as he considers this plight. It would simply be better had he never been born. That's his first conclusion he's come to. Now, we look at those words and we might judge him for his response to these things. We could tell him how, how that all things work together for good, how that God always has a plan, how he must keep the faith and keep pushing forward. Those responses would not even begin to show an understanding of what Job has gone through. And as I mentioned to you, the first message in this series, Job was a real person. Job is flesh and blood, just like you and I are. And therefore, his response is genuine, and it shows the depth of the pain that he's experienced. Look at verse 2. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. Now, notice that. He says, I wish that day had never occurred, had never happened. But I want you to see a particular phrase there in verse 3 that is very important for us prophetically. Look at the last words there, a man-child conceived. I want you to hold your hand there, and you would, if you would, in Job 3, and go to Revelation chapter 12. I've got a few scriptures for you to look at this morning as we do a study here of this time of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to look at the first five verses of that chapter. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, looking through down through verse 5. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And there appeared a great woman, a great wonder rather, in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth, watch it, a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Notice the man-child there. First of all, an obvious reference to Jesus Christ, because it says there, he'll rule all nations with a rod of iron. Prophesied for us in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 9. Also, Israel is symbolized in this scripture oftentimes as the figure of a woman, uh, the wife of Jehovah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 54, 1 through 6, and uh, Jeremiah 3, 1 through 14 are two places where that reference is made. 
So here you have in Revelation chapter 12, a, a picture of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ through the nation of Israel. But what is often true in Scripture, especially in biblical prophecy, there can be double fulfillments of the same picture. This picture in Revelation chapter 12 not only portrays the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also portrays Israel's spiritual birth. The man-child can also be a picture of the rebirth of the nation of Israel during the time of the Great Tribulation. There will be 144,000 witnesses, witnesses, 12,000 from each tribe that come out of that nation as a remnant who are faithful unto the Lord. And the symbolic use of the painful birth and tribulation is common in pictures given to us by the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah prophesied of a day where Israel would come back to life, where they'd return spiritually to where God wanted them before they had sinned against him. I want to read you Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7. It says, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Folks, that is a, a prophecy of the nation of Israel being reborn. But only after great travail, only after they go through the horror of the pain of the tribulation time. I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. Go back the other way in scripture. Go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Another prophecy regarding the birth of the nation of Israel through great tribulation, through great travail. Jeremiah chapter 30. And when you get there, look at verse 6. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 6. Here's another prophecy regarding the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 30, verse 6 says this, Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break this, his yoke from off thy, off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Notice that we have the same symbolism here in Jeremiah as we have in Job and in Revelation. After great travail, the nation of Israel breaks forth, and they serve the Lord as they did during the reign of David. I mentioned to you a while back, I want to mention to you again, uh, the truth is that during the time of the great tribulation, God will allow all sorts of horrors to come upon the nation of Israel. And the purpose of that will be to draw them back to him. They will occur to get them back into the place of God's blessing and God's favor. The whole point of the tribulation time is to get Israel back to where they need to be, back into, uh, under, under God's rule once again. That's why it's there. And so that travail will break forth and those horrors will come. And the whole point is to get that chosen nation back to himself again. And folks, that's why I believe the church does not go through the tribulation time. There's no part of the tribulation that in any way would benefit or pertain to a believer who's been living in the church age. It is all about bringing Israel back to their time and getting them back under God's rule again. So Job shows us just how difficult this time is going to be and what God's people, the nation of Israel, is going to have to endure to go through that time. Now, go back to Job again if you would. Because I don't want us to miss what Job is saying practically here in the midst of this prophetic connection. Job is in the midst of a battle between Satan and God. He is the pawn in that battle. And in spite of all that he is enduring, Job has not cursed God. 
Grab a hold of that, folks. Job has not cursed God in spite of all that. He stayed faithful to God. He is enduring, not cursing. Instead, what does he do? He curses the day of his birth. Now, I want you to understand, that does not indicate a lapse in Job's faith. That's not what that is at all. It does not indicate that Job has become bitter and resentful toward God. He just wants the pain to stop. He just wishes this day was over, that he had never been brought into this time. He is not bitter toward God at all. He just wishes the day of his birth would never have occurred so he could avoid all that he's going through at this time. That re- reaction to his in no way is unspiritual and, in fact, is completely reasonable. And my guess is he's reacting more spiritually than I would have had I been in the same place that Job is in. But I want you to see another prophetic reference here. Look at verse 4. It says, As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come uh, into the number of months. He talks about the days and that day in verse 4. Prophetically, that phrase is almost always a reference to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is just another reference to the time of God's judgment during the tribulation and also includes the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. And you'll find throughout the Old Testament prophecies, it's always a reference to a time that God is going to deal specifically with the nation of Israel. So historically, Job is referring to that day of his birth. Prophetically, he is referring to that future day, that day of great tribulation. And Job says several things here that pertain to that day of tribulation that I'd like us to take note of this morning. Again, notice he says in verse 4, it will be a day of great darkness. Let that day, he says, be darkness. Job considers his day of his birth as a day of darkness and a day of night. But that also tells us about the future coming judgment uh, during that day of tribulation. I want to read you Amos chapter 5, verse 18. It says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not night. He says, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and she leaned upon his hand upon the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? Zephaniah says this, Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12, And I beheld when he opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Later in chapter 16 verse 10 in Revelation, John says, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. It's going to be a day of great darkness. Literally and spiritually and figuratively, it's a horrible day of darkness and pain. As God unleashes all of his fury upon this earth. Notice also in verse 5, if you would, Job chapter 3, verse 5. Let darkness and shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. It is also a day of death. A day of death. Notice that phrase there again, the shadow of death. That is a phrase used throughout the word of God, but it's used five times, or rather eight times rather, in the book of Job. With this book having such a tremendous connection to the tribulation time, there is some prophetic connection to this phrase, the shadow of death. 
Now, you're aware of that phrase from Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. But Jeremiah also uses that, and Isaiah also uses that phrase, and Amos also uses that phrase. Every time that phrase is used in those places, it is always a reference to the tribulation time. In many places throughout the Old Testament prophecies, the shadow of death comes over the land and covers it, as would a dark cloud that totally blots out the light of the sun. Now, because of our limited understanding, because of our ability to conceive what God can do and will do is limited, we cannot fully know what this phrase means. But I want to let our imaginations run wild just for a minute. Realize in the last days, there's going to be a war of cataclysmic proportions at the end of the tribulation. That war called the day of Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon. It's possible that war will be some sort of nuclear holocaust that could spread a cloud of dust of radioactivity over the entire earth. A cloud that could cover all those who live during that time and cover all those who are there. Job 3 verse 5 connects that shadow of death to a cloud. It's very possible. I'm not saying it's true. Again, just let our imaginations run for a minute. It's very possible that a nuclear war of that size could create, create that kind of radioactive cloud that would darken the sun and cover the entire earth. I know we're speculating, but it does give some idea, folks, of the picture of just how awful that day is going to be. Amen. How horrible that day will be. Look at verse 6, Job chapter 3. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Job says it's a day that doesn't count. A day that doesn't count. Now, historically, what's Job saying? He's saying, I wish the day that I was born was never counted. He wishes there were not part of any of the days of any month of the year that included his birthday. He wishes there were no way that he could say that it was his 39th birthday or his 51st birthday or whatever it might be. That is the depth of the misery Job is going through. He wishes he had no birthday whatsoever. But certainly those in the tribulation are going to wish the same thing. And those coming days are going to be very special, like no other day that has occurred up to this point. Right. It's going to be a confusing time. It's going to be a time when things are turned upside down, a day of transitions uh, to the, from the wonderful day of grace to the horrible day of the Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, Jesus Christ says, For then shall be the great tribulation, as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor, no, nor ever shall be. Amen. <laughs> Never a day like that. Jesus Christ says, never before and never after. A time that will be so horrific that those who are living through it would wish that day did not count and had never come. Look at verse 7. Job chapter 3, verse 7. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it that curse the day who are ready to raise up their mourning. Job has already cursed his day. Now he invites others to curse his day as well. He wants all those who are around him, those friends who are sitting there with him, to join in this lament that he has never, had never been born onto this earth and to curse that day as he curses that day. In the midst of the great time of tribulation, that terrible day of the Lord, there are going to be those who curse it. Hard to believe. There are going to be people during that time who are so hardened to their sin and so hardened to what Jesus Christ did for them, they'll curse the very God who holds their fate in his hands. Revelation 16:9, And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath the power over the plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Amen. Men will be so depraved at that time, so caught up in their own sin, they'll be under the curse of God, and curse God who's doing it. Amen. 
the delusion will be so strong, the Antichrist will be so convincing that instead of rejecting the Antichrist and seeking the Lord, they will curse the Lord and follow the beast, the devil incarnate. Look at verse 9, Job chapter 3. Let the stars of the twilight therefore thereof be dark. Let it look for light, but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day. A day of hopeless emptiness. A day of hopeless emptiness. With all that Job has gone through and continues to go through, it's easy to see why he say this. I'm assuming we've all done this at some point in time. I know I have. You lay in bed at night, unable to sleep for whatever reason, and just waiting for the dawn to come. Why is it taking so long for the morning light to come? What is Job saying here? In his case, he is under such torment. He is not waiting for dawn to come. He has no hope dawn ever will come. He believes it's going to be in night for the rest of his life. He is so convinced there is no light at the end of his tunnel. There is no hope for any sort of relief whatsoever. No hope that his situation will ever improve. Now, folks, I know we can't put ourselves there because I will not want to be there. I will not be there. But imagine what it's going to be like. When all the forces of hell, all the forces of evil are permitted by God to be loosed upon this earth. We think it's bad now. We haven't seen anything like it's going to be during that time. All the forces of evil being let loose over all the earth with no restraint whatsoever. I know it seems like evil reigns right now. I know we watch elections occur and we think evil must reign over and over and truly it does. What we see now, folks, I want to say to you, is a drop in the bucket compared to what's going to happen during that seven-year period of time. What the earth is going to experience during that tribulation is is much, much more than we see right now. It'll be a day of no hope. It'll be a day of no light. And those who are in the midst of that thing, as we mentioned, will not repent, will not turn back to God. Even in spite of that, they will curse him and reject him. They will not acknowledge their sin. They will not see the evil of their ways. They will not be, they will be convinced that somehow, some way, they can weather through God's judgment. You've got folks like that today, you know. People you work with, people you associate with. Somehow they're going to get through God's judgment. Somehow they're going to be okay. When they meet God, many men believe that it's not the case. They laugh at God. They mock God. No fear that God will judge them for any of that. And that attitude will continue into the tribulation time, even as God's full wrath comes upon them. It is amazing to me how the pride of people and their sinful desires can fool them into believing things that simply aren't true. It's amazing to me. They believe that somehow, some way, they can get through unscathed, that God is just a myth, or God is just a fairy tale, and that God's judgment is not real. Amen. Believer, I want to say to you this morning, God's judgment is real. Amen. It's coming. It's coming. And when it comes, there's no relief. No relief whatsoever. There's a rude awakening coming someday as they stand before God if they persist in that attitude. God's wrath upon sin will come someday, and when it comes, there's no stopping it. Look at verse 10. Because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. A day of sorrow for birth. A day of sorrow for birth. Job laments the fact that he was born, doesn't see it as a joyous occasion, rather sees it as a time of sadness and sorrow. And again, that is the picture that God is using to show us how through sadness and sorrow and travail, Israel will be reborn. So prophetically, what do we see? We see that all this great sorrow and pain that those are left here after the rapture will have to go through. And there will be such anger and there will be such sorrow and such torment during that time. And rather than turn back to God, people will curse God and reject him. 
I want to say to you folks, please hear me. If you have unsaved loved ones, unsaved friends, unsaved people you know, you need to talk to them about getting saved and knowing Jesus Christ. You don't want them going through that time. Because that's just the tip of the iceberg of what they'll go through for all of eternity. Get them saved now. Talk to them now. Call them today and say, look, I need to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Because God's judgment is coming. And when it comes, there's no relief. No relief whatsoever. Take every opportunity to show Jesus Christ to your world. Take every opportunity through your speech and your behavior to demonstrate Jesus Christ. Please put aside everything in your life that might in any way distract you from the job that Jesus Christ has given us to do, demonstrating Jesus Christ to them. Even if they are things you're not convicted about, even if they are things that have no value to you whatsoever, put them aside and show Jesus Christ. We need to do it, folks. We need to do it now. Need to do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Do all we can and give up whatever we must give up to help our unsaved friends and loved ones see that Jesus Christ is the only answer Amen. to God's judgment that's coming. In beginning in verse 11, Job considers an ageless question. Job considers an ageless question. Job has cursed his day. And now here's the question he asks. Why was I ever born? Why was I ever born? Why was I ever put onto this earth? What is the point of my life? Now, you may have never been to that point. Maybe you have. Maybe you've been in such despair at times. Maybe life has seemed so difficult and so unfair that you wonder why God allowed you to be born in the first place. Job was wondering here why he was never stillborn. Why did he have to come out of his mother alive? He's wondering why his spirit couldn't have left him and gone to heaven rather than stay on this earth and endure all that he had to endure. Look at verse 11. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent prevent me? Or why did the breast that I should suck? I want you to look at that and then go back to Job chapter 1 and verse 5. Job chapter 1 verse 5. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This thus did Job continually. Job was a man who had faithfully served God, faithfully served God to his family, faithfully served God to those around him. He had served God all of his life, done everything that he was supposed to do and remained faithful to God in all that God expected of him. This is a saint of God who spent his entire life serving the Lord, doing all that God had called him to do and doing it in the perfect way that God expected him to do it. And now Job is receiving the pay of one who spent all of his life ignoring God and disrespecting God and refusing God's standard and serving the devil. Job is getting that back in return for what he's done. And with those thoughts on his mind, beginning in verse 13 and going down through verse 19, Job contemplates death. After he's gone through all he's gone through, watching all that's gone on around him, Job is saying, you know what? Not just why was I ever born. Rather, why did I have even have to have life itself? Why did I even have to be born into this life? Why would I be alive? Job is saying, I'd be better off dead. Be better off dead. Now, that might be alarming talk to our friends and loved ones if we were to say that. If they heard us considering the fact that maybe death is an option to the pain we're experiencing. Our friends and loved ones may be concerned about our well-being, might even call in some authority to get us to a safe place if we talk that way. But we need to understand, folks, what Job is going through. Having lost everything, he is desperate and depressed and in despair. 
And with all this happening in his life, considering death is not out of the out of ordinary, is not it's understandable. I've never been to that point in my life myself, but over the years, I can't count the number of people who I've dealt with who are at that point who even made attempts to end their lives because they just couldn't handle the, the misery anymore. And in some ways, it's, a nat- it's natural to wonder when we go through difficult hardships, is life really worth living? Is this really worth what I have to go through? What's the end of all this and what's the point of it all? If life is worth living, is it really worth being here? And that's where we find Job. Job, first of all, considers the nature of death. Look at verse 13. He says, For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept, and then, and had, and then had been, I had, I'll say it again, then had I been at rest. He considers the nature of death. Job considers the Old Testament saint to be at rest in death. We're not going to go there this morning, but I know you know the story well. In Luke chapter 16, we have the conversation between the rich man and Lazarus. Have you noticed the fact that the rich man is the one who's doing all the talking? He's the one who's doing all the talking there. Lazarus is not saying a word. You know why that is? Because Lazarus is not desperate. Lazarus is at rest. Lazarus is at peace in God's resting place. Folks, heaven is a permanent resting place. And that's what Job is crying out for here in the midst of his trial. But then Job also considers his neighbors in death. His neighbors in death. Look at verse 13 again. For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then had I been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or as an untimely birth, I had not been as infants which never saw light. Job is aware of this, folks, that many people are, they are not aware of. Death is the great equalizer. Death is the great equalizer. You know one thing about everybody? Unless Jesus Christ comes, we all die. <laughs> we all die. That equalizes it all. I don't care how much you have or how little you have. I don't care if you have a high position or a low position. Death equalizes all of it. That's why Jesus Christ told us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, don't lay up your treasures here. Don't put your stuff here. Don't depend on your stuff here. Because you see, that stuff is all going to be destroyed someday. We must focus on eternal things, not temporary things. And it's the wise man or the wise woman who makes the realization, as Job did, before death rather than after death. When everything is that they work for, everything they strive for is useless and counts for nothing. I want to encourage you folks, be invested in eternal things. Make sure part of your investment portfolio includes heaven, (laughs) includes God's work, includes leading others to Jesus Christ. The souls of men and the work of the Lord and being Jesus to our world, make sure we invest in those things as well. Because those things will last where nothing else will. Look at verse 16. Or as a hidden untimely birth, I had not been as infants which never saw light. He speaks of the nameless in death. The nameless in death. Job wishes he had never been born. He knows those infants who have been aborted or miscarried have the same rest as the dead saints do. Now this is the realization is a great truth, folks. It should be a comfort to those who have lost an infant. There is great hope for those who for whatever reason never saw light. They never saw light physically in the sense they were never born, but also spiritually they never saw light in that they never had the opportunity to see Jesus Christ as light of the world. And therefore, they are free to go to heaven because they never rejected Jesus Christ. His death 
burial, and resurrection covers their sins, and they are not required to pay the penalty for them because they never had a chance to either receive or reject Jesus Christ. Any child who passes away not knowing right from wrong, not having the opportunity to make a choice for Jesus Christ, no matter how old they may be or how their lives end, they are all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. And I hope you understand how I say this. The only positive thing I see about issue one passing is those kids will be in heaven. <laughs> those kids will be in heaven. There's nothing else good about it. But that's a good thing. Praise God at least when those children are boarded. They'll be in heaven with Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 17. We see the neutralizing effect of death. The neutralizing effect of death. It says there, there, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Job said, I'd be better off dead, because in death there are no wicked people there to bother me. No wicked people to trouble the saints of God. The wicked are in hell. They can't bother anybody. The saints are in heaven. They are at rest and nobody can get to them or torment them. Now, I know that during a trial, heaven seems a long way off. I know when the circumstances come around you and the darkness comes, it's hard to sort through all that, pry through all that and see heaven. But folks, I want to say something to you this morning. No matter how difficult things that are get that you are going through, it is only temporary. <laughs> Only temporary. And we need to find hope and strength in that truth. There is coming a day of complete and total rest where Satan can't get to you and sin has no hold over you and the wicked can no longer touch you. Amen. I don't know how it works, but Steve sang a song this morning and it talked about the rest we find in heaven. Amen. God has a way of working these out, doesn't he? Now, folks, when you're in a trial, and I know this is difficult stuff, but I want to say it to you. When you are in a trial... We, it would be good for us to do our best to show Jesus Christ in the midst of our circumstances. And it would be best also to keep our eyes fastened on the place of rest that will someday be a reality for every child of God. Amen. I know the circumstances are difficult. I know some of you are going through some difficult times, some horrible times. I get it. I get it. But if you just take that thing and just pry it apart, you see the glory of heaven. It's there. It's waiting for you. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's there. And the promise is someday we will all be there. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. <laughs> the last seven verses of this chapter, Job continues his questions. Job continues his questions. What you find in the book of Job, and we'll see this as we continue on, you will find that every question of human life is considered in the book of Job. As he endures his trial, he seeks for God's help. He seeks to understand what life is all about. And that is one of the great benefits, I believe, of studying the book of Job. Now look at verse 20, if you would. Wherefore is light given to the, him that is in misery, and life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures, which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hid? And whom God hath hedged in. Job is considered a classic question here. What Job is really asking is this. Why does not God put the suffering out of their misery? Why does not God put the suffering out of their misery? Haven't you often wondered why when you see somebody going through a horrible ordeal with no hope of recovery? Haven't you often said to yourself, why does God allow that? 
as they linger on for days and for months and sometimes even for years. Job is asking the question that we might all ask. If God is truly loving, why would he let these things go on? And even having the advantage of God's word, even with the understanding of the spiritual warfare that goes on around us, there is simply no good answer to that question. I don't understand why. Why does God allow it? I can't tell you. My dad laid in the hospital bed for seven days, unconscious. Why would God allow that? Why not just take him? But he didn't. Why? I don't know why. When the time was right, God took him. There's a lady I know who just passed away this week. Her name was Pat Piggott. Pat was a great soul winner for Jesus Christ. And she was in a nursing home and witnessed to everybody in that nursing home. I mean, everybody, doctors, nurses, everybody. And she said at the end of that thing, why am I still here? I've done the work I need to do. Why is God keeping me here? I don't know why God kept her there until uh, recently she passed away. I have no idea. All I know is that God is merciful and God does care and God always has a purpose and God's purposes are always right. And folks, you need to grab a hold of that. Don't let that slip away from you. Make sure you have it placed in your mind all the time. God is merciful and God is always right. And God's purposes are always exactly what they need to be. Amen. Because I want to tell you, when you go through that difficulty, you're going to question like Job did. You're going to wonder why. You can't wonder why. Instead, you say, you know what? God is gracious. God is merciful and God has a plan. And you hold on to that Amen. because there's nothing else to hold on to we got to be grounded in that truth. Now, in terms of a tribulation connection here, Revelation chapter 9, verse 6, during that horrible time, the people will want to die, but will be unable to. That verse says death will flee from them, Revelation chapter 9 and verse 6. Those folks are going to be in such agony, and they'll want to die, and death will not come to them. And the same is true of every person, every soul in hell this morning. They want the pain to cease. They want the torment to end. But those in hell are never annihilated. They're there forever, all of eternity, and they will continue there forever and ever in the torment of that horrible place. That's why Jesus Christ came, to avoid all that. God sends nobody to hell. A man goes to hell by his own choice. They've got a way out, and they choose not to take it. If you're here this morning or listening by way of Facebook Live or YouTube and have never trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior, I will say to you, hell is not where you need to be if you trust Jesus Christ. That's the option you have. You've got a choice to make, one or the other. Look at verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid, whom God hath hedged in? In chapter 1 and verse 10, Satan's complaint to God was that God had hedged Job in with his protection. Now Job feels hedged in by God as God has allowed him to be the object of the full assault of Satan's attack. Verse 24, for my sign cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. Job's torment has become so great, he is under such a trial that he is reduced to making noises like an animal as he suffers. The intense pain he's going through, the intense suffering he is going through, get the picture this morning of what Job is dealing with. Verse 25, look at what it says. For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. The fear factor in Job's suffering. And for the first time, we get a glimpse into the reason why Job's trial came. One of the reasons, an impending problem in Job's life that God is revealing through through these struggles. 
in spite of his godly life, in spite of his righteous life, Job had some hidden fears. There were some things Job was afraid of. Now, I'll tell you, as a believer, there's only one kind of fear we should have. That's the fear of the Lord. The only thing we need to fear is fear God. A person who genuinely fears God, I believe, will fear nothing else. And what that tells me is sometimes God may bring a trial into our lives to force us to face our fears and realize that with God on our side, we have no need to fear anything. But sometimes we don't know that until it's proved to us. And God brings trials to purify us and to force us to deal with areas in our life that don't fully match what God wants from us. What is the opposite of fear? The opposite of fear is faith. Faith. And sometimes the only way to grow our faith and push out fear is to have that faith tested. Being made conformable under the image of his death. And so we see God's work in our lives through our trial as we have proof that God is faithful and that his mercy endures forever. And it's only then that we can cast off our fears and rest in our faith in him. You know how you'll get rid of your fear? You may have some horrible fear this morning, something that just scares you to death. You know how to get rid of that fear? Let God have you face it and realize it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> when God gets through it, you say, what? what was I afraid of? Remember as a kid worrying about the monsters in your closet? Won't open that closet door because there's monsters in there? Remember when you open the door and there's no monster there? Sometimes God has to force us to open the closet door. <laughs> so you know what? No, there's no monster in there. I've got it all taken care of. <laughs> got it all handled. I want to ask you a question this morning. What do you fear? What are you afraid of this morning? And I'm serious about this. As you consider the, 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 the recesses of your heart, what is it in that heart that scares you? Is it financial failure? Is it a health issue? Is it family concerns? What is it that scares you this morning? Does the world situation scare you? What is it that scares you this morning? What are you afraid of today? What are you afraid of? Realize that if you fear people or circumstances or possible events in your life, those Fears are not from God. God didn't bring those in. Second Timothy 1.7, I love this verse. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Amen. No fear. Power, love, and a sound mind. As you ground yourself in the word of God, as you ground yourself in the principles of that book, as you learn who God is and learn to fear him, all those other fears are just cast aside. Can I give you God's instruction this morning, folks? Fear him. Fear him. Fear him. If you harbor fears in your life, it's possible God may have to purge those fears from you as you did with Job. And you can avoid that entire process by getting on your knees and recognizing who God is and recognizing his power and his omniscience. Recognize all about God and then say, Lord, I fear you. You're the only one I fear. Amen. And if you do that, all the other fears are just set aside. How do I do that? Well, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, that's the place to start. You start by fearing him, by trusting him as Savior, and accept his invitation uh, to have your sins taken care of through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, believer, you fear him by recognizing who he is, recognizing what he, what he wants to do in your life, and recognize your only rational response is to submit to him. Amen. Put yourself under his control. Get on your knees before him and say, Lord, it's all yours, <laughs> whatever you want to do. 
And if you all do that, all other fears will will cast away. A person who fears God in the way that I just described to you doesn't need to fear anything or anybody else. Believer, no matter what God allows into our lives, realize that because you know him, you have nothing at all to fear. You are safe in the loving, gracious, merciful hands of God. Safe in him and nothing can get to you. Praise God for it. Let's pray.